You're listening to sermons from First United Methodist Church in the heart of Huntsville, Texas. We hope you'll join us for traditional worship in our historic sanctuary at 8.30 or 11 a.m. or for contemporary worship in our new Community Life Center at 9.45. Visit us online at HuntsvilleFUMC.org and we hope you'll join us as we gather to worship, grow in faith, and go to serve the world in the name of Jesus Christ. I was learning about my, uh, my Girl Scouts. We have Junior Girl Scouts, we have Daisies, and we have Brownies. And I asked the Brownies why they don't sell Brownies. And uh, anyway, they were, we were a little confused. We're good. Um, so we have followed Jesus along the way. We followed him to the wilderness. We have followed Jesus um, to the other side. Where the folks in Galilee, where the folks of the Gentiles were, the place that was unclean where any good Jew would never go. We followed Jesus last week to the base of Mount Hermon, where Jesus asked Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter gives the right answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And today, we make this turn with Jesus as he begins his ascent to Jerusalem and to the place where he fulfills his mission to die for the sins of the world and to give us new life. And so today, um, in a little bit different style of message, we're going to be doing a sort of a teaching message on some essential passages here in Mark chapter 10, which really does serve as this key text to defining who Jesus is and who his followers are called to be. So hear these words from Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. His disciples were astonished. You know, they had seen all sorts of amazing miracles. He had fed 5,000, and then later on, he had fed 4,000. He went places they couldn't have possibly imagined a Messiah going. He healed people from all of their diseases. And yet he had just been talking about a whole bunch of things that had given them concern, something about him going to Jerusalem to die. He gathered a bunch of other folks, too, those crowds that Madeline was talking about, and those that followed now are afraid. They they don't know exactly what kind of Messiah this is or what's going to happen now that they're headed to Jerusalem. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, and you can begin to see those twelve disciples just phase out. They have heard this story before. This is the third time in just two chapters that Jesus is now telling them about what would happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise from the dead. Jesus, in many ways, is like a coach laying out the play before them. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to Jerusalem, and the following things are going to go down. He doesn't give them necessarily what their part in it is, except for to follow him all the way. Here's what's going to happen. And yet, as soon as he tells them, each and every time on these passion predictions, the disciples scatter off to do their own thing. It reminds me of my few years as a Little League soccer coach. 
You gather all the kids together in the huddle, and you say, okay, uh, you guys are going to be on defense. I'm going to get you all set up here. You guys are going to be on offense. And then you, you say, okay, break, and the whistle blows, and what do they all do? They all go after the ball. <laughs> and this herd just follows the ball everywhere because they all want to score. They all want to be in possession of the ball. They all want to be the one that wins the game. And the disciples are no different. Jesus gives them the play, and he says, are you with me? And then immediately following this, they prove otherwise. They prove that, uh, that they simply are not up to the task. Now, back in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, Jesus calls his first disciples, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, while he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. And then off in the distance, he sees this wealthy man, Zebedee, with his fishing empire out there on the boat. We know that he was wealthy because he had multiple boats. He also had hired servants who were doing some of the work. And he also had two sons, Zebedee's sons. Can anybody remember their nickname? Who said that? Did you say Sons of Thunder? Where's those Thin Mints, Gene? Yeah, here we go. Will you take her those Thin Mints? That was, that was the how good are you in Bible school uh, fun thing there. Yeah, those weren't for you, sweetie. Yeah. I'll get you the four bucks later, all right? James and John, the Sons of Thunder. The uh, or Boadrones is what they're called in the in the Hebrew or the Greek. Uh, Zebedee's boys, James and John, and Jesus calls them, and they are so impulsive, so impatient that the second he says, "Hey, follow me," they jump out of the boat, they swim to the shore, and they leave their poor old dear old dad in the middle of the lake to fend for himself. Jesus doesn't tell them where they're going. He doesn't tell them about what kind of work he'll have them do. He doesn't tell them if they have medical benefits or a pension plan or anything. No, he just says, follow me, and off they go, following Jesus along the way. Well, as we see a few times in Mark's gospel, the disciples don't quite get this mission that Jesus is about. He reminds them again and again that he's headed on his way to Jerusalem to die. And then he speaks to these two boys. He says, he, he, he's, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to Jesus and they ask, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Can you imagine asking Jesus, our Savior, that question? Of course we can, because that's what we want. We want a God who does our bidding. We want a God who gives us whatever we ask. It's the perfect situation. And James and John think they've got this Jesus thing nailed down. Like he's some kind of divine vending machine where you just punch in the right code, say the right prayer, push the button, and the soda or the candy drops down, and nothing ever gets stuck in the little spindle. Of course, Jesus is not like this, but we often want it to be Jesus... Uh, turns to them and with such grace and with not an ounce of irritation, even though we can't tell tone of voice in Scripture, without an ounce of irritation, he just looks at them and says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? It's hard to imagine asking Jesus that, that we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's even harder to imagine, as Madeline was having the kids imagine, Jesus asking us, 
what do you want me to do for you? In the movie Aladdin, uh, Disney's Aladdin, the genie shows up after Aladdin rubs the lamp and tells him he gives him three wishes. He says he can't, you can't ask for more wishes. You can ask for money, you can ask for power, you can ask for fortune and fame. You can't ask for the genie to help you fall in love with anyone or to bring anybody back from the dead, but pretty much anything is on the table. Aladdin complains, saying, what do you mean? What kind of genie are you? You've got rules and regulations? Jesus has no provisions. He just simply asks these questioning disciples, what do you want me to do for you? This is the kind of God we serve, one who genuinely cares what's on our hearts, one who desires to know what his followers are asking for. And to the same question he asks his disciples, he asks us the very same. What do you want me to do for you? Well, of course, the disciples are thinking a lot about the things that Jesus has said recently. They've seen these miracles. They've seen these miraculous things that Jesus has done. And they've heard Jesus teach. And he, he said to Peter and to the other disciples that if anybody wants to follow me and to, to, to be counted as part of my disciples, they've got to take up their cross and follow me. They've got to deny themselves and serve me. They've got to come amongst people like one who serves, like a servant, like a slave, like the least among you. Jesus has talked about children in a way that no one had before. In those days, children were disregarded as dirt, and the disciples tried to push the little children away from Jesus, and Jesus said, no, no, let the little children come to me, for to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. And not only that, anyone who doesn't receive me, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never really inherit it. Of course, those disciples have been thinking all about that. They've got these messages of humility and self-sacrifice in their minds, and so, no, of course they don't. James and John answer Jesus' question, we want to sit at your right hand, at your right hand and your left hand, in your glory. Jesus, when you come into power, when you are the king of this world, when you go into Jerusalem on your white horse and you overthrow the Romans in victory, we want to be your top two, your main men, on your right and on your left. That's what we want you to do for us. We've been thinking a lot. We think this is a good idea. We'll be your COO and your CFO. We will help you take care of business in your new kingdom, Jesus. Jesus says, you don't understand what you're asking. Can you... Drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? Jesus is referring, of course, to the cup of suffering and the baptism into death that he's talked about three separate times. He's saying he's headed to Jerusalem and he's not going to be the kind of powerful ruler who overthrows the Romans, but instead one who comes and in this way of suffering establishes the way of peace and whose life is given as a sacrifice for many. He says, can you do that? They, with all the gusto in the world, say, we can, completely missing the point. Now, in the sanctuary, we sometimes sing a song called, Are Ye Able? And in those words, the hymn writer completely misses the point as well. Uh, they write, are ye able, says the master, to be crucified with, with me? Yea, the sturdy dreamers answered, to the death will follow thee. Yes, Lord, we are able. And like James and John, we often are so naive to think that no matter what comes our way, we will follow Jesus 
to the death. But of course, as the story continues, we see that not a single disciple follows him to the end. When the going gets tough, the tough doesn't get going. Instead, they all turn to the side and follow after what is best for themselves. The disciples unfortunately reveal to us our own selfishness, our own pride, those times where we could ask for anything, and instead of asking things for the world or for others in need, we ask for ourselves because when we are honest with ourselves, we want what's best for us. And it's hard sometimes to think of anything else. Jesus says, you will drink the cup that I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus says, you, James and John, you indeed will face the same kind of suffering. Though you abandon me, though you deny me, though you're nowhere to be found in my moment of greatest trial, you too will face your own suffering. John will live longer than any of the disciples, but his own suffering and his own eyes will see the persecution of his brothers and sisters in Christ. James, in Acts chapter 12, will be pierced by a sword and killed by King Agrippa. They will experience the cup of suffering. Just as Jesus said, anyone who follows me must serve. Anyone who wants to come after me must take up their own cross. Now, James and John may have asked this question in a whisper. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. But the rest of the disciples heard it. And when the ten hear it, the other ten, they are ticked off. They are indignant. This is a very strong word used by Mark. When the ten heard it, they became indignant with James and John. Now, we could say that the ten were thinking, now how dare they ask such a question like that? Don't you know the kind of Messiah Jesus is, that he came to serve and he's humble? And that I think more that they were mad they didn't get there first. They wanted, to, they wanted to be the first to ask for those two spots on the left and right-hand side of Jesus. They had missed their chance, and they are none too pleased about that. Jesus calls them together and reminds them. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority, power, authority. Not so with you. Instead, anyone who wants to be great must be your servant. How can you become great? How can you become successful? How can you become happy and fulfilled in life? Jesus says you must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first must become a slave of all. Top of your class, first in line, most popular, best car, best everything. No, it's become a servant, become a slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, look at me. Look at the way I live. Look at the service I do. Look at the way in which I give my life for many. If even I do this, even as Paul writes about in Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, the one who had equality with God did not regard it as something to be exploited for his own benefit, but instead he emptied himself and became a slave and bore on his back the marks of the cross. If even he could do that, so too we are called to serve. James and John leave that place with their wishes ungranted, and yet they follow him nonetheless. 
For as we turn to the passage that Madeline and the children considered, this passage, as they move into Jericho, we find that the same 12 disciples, including James and John, are still following him. Which to me is a word of great grace for us, that even in those places where we fall short, even in the places where we totally miss the point and we get the questions wrong and we get the answers incorrect and we fail and we fall and we stumble along the road, even when we can't even measure up to that very low bar that the disciples set before us, Jesus still turns to us and says, I've got places to be, I've got things to do, and I don't want you to follow me. So follow me. We're going to Jericho. So Jesus takes those disciples and they go to Jericho. And there is another son, another young man. They came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bar Timaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. We have Bartimaeus sitting at the roadside begging. We had the, the sons of Zebedee, Bar Zebedee, who the first thing they're asking for is places of positions and power. The contrast cannot be more stark. This man, Bartimaeus, uh, this man, uh, the son of Timaeus, is sitting on his mat. He is begging in the midst of the beauty of Jericho, which was an absolute oasis in the midst of the desert. There sits a man in the midst of this oasis with palm trees all around who has a desert within his heart. He's thirsty. He's hungering for things that all of us or most of us take for granted. And he simply cries out, not with arrogance or pride, but instead with all the humility that he can muster. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They tell him to shut up, and he continues to cry all the louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy. Give me grace. Give me a second chance. Give me an opportunity. Give me forgiveness. See me. Listen to me. Look at me. And Jesus, he calls him. The shortest scripture in all of uh, the shortest scripture in all of the, the Bible is in John chapter 11, and it's Jesus wept. But here in Mark chapter 10, verse 49, we have another short one, and it would be this, Jesus stopped. Again, Jesus had places to go and things to do and people to see and miracles to perform and a world to save. And yet here, even in the midst of this, he hears the voice of this beggar crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, and Jesus stopped. What do we do when we see folks begging? Now, maybe we don't see as many on the street corners as you would in a city like Houston or other places, but there are folks all around us begging all the time, begging for money, begging for a chance, begging for mercy, begging for attention, begging for just a moment of your time. St. Francis said that when we see a beggar, when we see someone begging, that we ought to remember that we were placed on this earth to be generous to those who are asking. Or Martin Luther, when he said, If you see a beggar, it should remind you of your own spiritual state, that no matter how rich you may be in life, you inside are still poor and in need of mercy. Jesus had much to do and much to accomplish, but Jesus stopped and gave this man his full attention. And did you catch it? He asks him the very same question he asked of James and John. 
what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The very same question that James and John had responded with their arrogance and pride. We want to sit in those places of glory. We want to be at the top, Jesus. Blind Bartimaeus simply asks for something that most of us experience every day. Lord, Rabbi, I want to see. Bartimaeus wants to see people. He wants to see the world in color. He wants to see trees and the beauty of Jericho that surrounds him. He wants to see the face of his mother or the hands of his father that held him and helped to raise him. He he may even want to see the faces of those who mocked him and passed him by for so many years, but instead he opens up his eyes, and what is the very first thing that he sees? It's the beautiful face of Jesus. Many of the songs in the United Methodist hymnal were written by a woman named Fanny Crosby, And she was blind most of her adult years. And one of the things that she said in reflecting on her blindness is that she was given great comfort because she knew that in heaven the first thing she would open her eyes to see would be the face of her Lord. Bartimaeus has the joy of being able to experience that in that very moment. And when he does and his sight is restored He doesn't run off and and play I spy with his brand new eyes all of the things that he can see. But instead, he focuses his heart upon Jesus. Like his prayer had always been, like Psalm 27, one thing I've asked and one thing I will seek, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Imagine for him a world of darkness where now he not only sees the light of the sun, but the light of the world in the Son of God. And he can do nothing else but follow him. Bartimaeus has received mercy. He has received grace. He's received healing. He's received a second chance, and now he chooses to follow Jesus. That final verse, go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. He received mercy, and now he can't take his eyes off Jesus and the places that he's going, and the work that he's calling him to. Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you, Bartimaeus? What do you want me to do for you, James and John? What do you want me to do for you, people of God? And we respond not asking, what do I want to do? Or what do I want to do for God? But instead, like Bartimaeus, Jesus What do you want me to do for you? As we continue in our season of Lent and move toward Easter, may this be a challenge to each of us this week that as we we open up ourselves to these words of Jesus asking us, what do you want me to do for you? We too, having received mercy and grace, might ask Jesus the very same. What, Jesus, do you want? want me to do for you. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks and praise for your grace, for hearing us as we cry out for mercy. And we ask Jesus that we might be moved by this mercy and forgiveness and healing to ask you 
Oh, Jesus, what do you want us to do for you? Thanks be to God. Amen.